1: Greetings from the Hill country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. Okay, today we have uh, Leo Barron, who's written two fantastic books. They came out a few years ago, but I think they're important books because they do a great job of examining the, the, I don't want to say the life, but the battlefield prowess of uh, General George Patton, and I think they're phenomenal books. So the first one, is the uh Patton at the Battle of the Bulge how the general's tanks turned the tide at Bastone that came out in 2014 and then the second book even though chronologically in, in how it actually happened it's you know the first book but that one is Patton's first victory how general George Patton turned the tide in North Africa and de- defeated the Africa Corps at El Gatar. Leo I love those books. I think they're terrific and that's why I want to talk about them. I think they're important uh, books for anybody that's uh, looking to understand, especially considering the rise of you know large-scale combat operations and yep. major combat operations and everything that we're seeing with uh, Russia, Ukraine and how that will potentially continue to be the future. I think it's important to get into those books and uh, talk about that. So Leo, with that, thank you for coming on today.
2: Thank you for having me, Amos. I appreciate it.
1: Uh, as, you, as you were working on this, and I know it's a bit dated, um, so please uh, start cracking open those old frozen memories here, some of which may, may or may not be good memories or pleasant memories. But what did you learn about Patton that you found most interesting?
2: What I thought was interesting was the different relationships that he had uh, with the soldiers that he commanded in the different units. Uh, for the most part uh the impression that soldiers had of Patton who served in the units of the third army so those were the guys that he's uh was in charge of uh after you know August 1st 1944 till the end of the war Yep. I would say all in all their opinion of of Patton was generally pretty positive uh I mean obviously there were you know exceptions here and there yeah but for the most part uh, the soldiers and junior officers uh, who served under Patton in 3rd Army tended to have a pretty positive opinion of them. That was not the case with the guys in the 1st Infantry Division hmm. who were serving uh, under Patton when Patton was in charge of 2nd uh, Corps uh, for the uh, North Africa campaign. Um, as you know, Friedenhall had been the commander. Patton, he had been fired. Patton had come in and was basically you know trying to clean up the mess that frieden hall left and he shook up a lot of things made a lot of changes mm-hmm. and as a you know as a army officer yourself you know how it's like when a new commander comes in and it's like yeah, i going to change all of this yep. and uh and uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of the changes brought a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth and, and consternation of course the the, the, he was, you know, finding soldiers for being out of uniform, you know, finding them $25 for not wearing a, a necktie yep. uh, that, you know, which when you think about it, you're like, man, that's North Africa. <laughs> <What>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, you, I need to button. up wearing... buttons, you know, yeah. not button the color up. Um,
2: so, uh, so yeah, the, 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 opinion of the soldiers, uh, in the big red one, especially cause you know, later on, uh, Terry Allen got fired. Yeah. Um, yeah it was not the same positive opinions and so that was something i really you know i had heard some little bits here and there but not really you know seen it close up yeah. and do after doing the research i found that was kind of a an interesting you know dichotomy
1: you think that had a lot to do with with uh patton's dislike for terry allen because it seems like you really didn't on a personal level he didn't appreciate terry allen at all nor nor did um, he appreciate um Uh, Roosevelt Jr. Teddy Roosevelt Jr.
2: Yeah I think part of it also had to do with he gets there and almost immediately he realizes how much Friedenhall had screwed things up yeah
1: Yeah, it was bad and (laughs) so
2: anything anything to do with Friedenhall I think was you know and this is my opinion was tainted was tainted goods uh and so obviously that would have included you know uh first infantry division um you know and obviously all the other divisions first yeah. armor division uh so I think that was part of it because hmm. initially when he actually got there in 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 March of 43 um his initial uh you know, impressions of, of the big red one was actually positive he went out and saw them do their exercises uh in the uh preparation of um for the preparation of uh operation not politically correct operation wop uh (laughs) that was the name of the operation uh and um but yeah his initial impressions were good but then uh later on uh especially after el guitar he felt that um alan did not use the tank destroyers properly from uh um uh, this like the 610th tank destroyer battalion. Mm-hmm. He felt that they were not used in the way that he would have envisioned them having been used, and if you know, a lot of tank destroyers were destroyed yeah. uh, at El Guitar. Now, one could argue putting a, a French seventy-five on top of a of an M three half track does yeah. not make, yeah, does not a tank destroyer make,
1: yeah,
2: but that's what. Oh, uh, that's what the six tenth changi destroyer battalion had. Yeah. And that's kind of a an unfair fight throwing up against, you know
1: Absolutely Mark
2: Four. Yeah, Mark IV F twos with yep. their long barreled seventy-fives. I mean, th- I, it's amazing they did as well as they did. And then uh but yeah, that was kind of I think the first when you start to see the 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 issues between yeah. you know between the two and Bradley had a lot of the same general Bradley had a lot of the same opinions that Patton had about you know Terry Allen mm-hmm. and ultimately you know both Bradley and Patton you know decided to think you know that okay Allen's got to go and then of course August August of 1943 after the you know the pretty much at the tail end of the Sicily operation uh you know Allen got fired yeah um and then they both uh, Bradley made the decision that in order to make a clean break, you couldn't just fire Allen. You had to fire uh, yep. Roosevelt as well. Um, but interestingly enough, it's a different, very different time than what you know. You and I are used to when it comes to you know army officer, you know uh, rank ascension and all that kind of stuff. You know, in our day, you get fired, you're done. Yeah, like that's it. Yeah. there's no. There's no second chance. That wasn't the case in World War II. You know, a lot of times uh, guys would get fired and, you know, uh, several months, a year down the road, they had a new command and had a second chance to, you know. Yeah, Terry Allen comes back later in Europe with the 104th, right? Is it the 104th? Yeah, 104th Timberwolves Division. And then um, Roosevelt
1: Roosevelt
2: was going to get 95th, right? Yep, he was going to get another division. Yeah. Um, and there's also a lot of things like that that happen to regimental commanders as well. So, getting fired was not a death sentence. I guess in like that, that
1: environment, it had to be. You couldn't, you couldn't yeah. cashier all your people in that type of uh, environment.
2: Well, and I think there was a recognition that you know sometimes personalities just don't mesh.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, and yeah. this personality might do better with this type of commander versus another commander.
1: Yeah.
2: Obviously Allen did fine yeah. as a division commander of the 104th, um, Served, you know, served admirably, served well, mm-hmm. you know, and so, and like I said, that's unheard of today. You yeah. know, someone gets fired. That's yeah, it's, it's done. That's it. They're yeah. done. And I, and I think, uh, and maybe this is a little bit kind of going down a rabbit hole, but I think, When you look at how we do things today versus how things were done back in World War II, I think we might have had a better model back in World War II because more or less you were given like 90 days to figure something out. And if you didn't figure it out, you got fired. Yeah. But that wasn't the end of your career. And nowadays, we keep guys on and we're like, unless they do something seriously egregious. Right, we're not going to fire him. Yeah.
1: You
0: know,
1: well, it's like <laughs> and, Fried- Friedendahl, Right, he gets uh, second corps just mauled. at <laughs> hey, Kazarine, yeah. gets sent back to the states. Gets another star. Gets a training command and finishes out the war. You know, training yeah. soldiers back in the U.S. And,
2: and and interestingly enough, he was an absolute disaster as a battlefield commander. Apparently, he was a very good training commander. Yeah. You know, he uh, he got high marks as a as a training guy. You know, and yeah. it's like. You know, that's just kind of well, things a, that I've observed. Yeah,
1: that's a good uh, that's a good transition point. So, from a war uh, from a war fighting perspective, uh, describe Patton's approach to warfare.
2: He was always about the offense, and he had a and this is probably what separated him from other you know generals. He had this uncanny knack of just kind of getting a sense of the pace of where the battle was going, mm-hmm. which allowed him to make almost kind of intuitive decisions uh, that obviously had a huge impact usually generally for the positive yeah uh, right. and and when it was a war of movement that's you know when he shined the most uh, it's not that he did a bad job with like the siege of Metz or anything like that but that was definitely outside of his yeah, comfort it was zone
1: far more challenging for him too from a mental standpoint right. it seemed yeah
2: and he was obviously operating on a, a, a on a very restricted austere budget because you know we had been yep. you know rationing fuel and everything like that he just like I said he had a you know he understood the offense he understood you know center of gravity he understood hey if I can get into guys you know in this case the German Army's rear yeah it really doesn't matter what they're going to be able to do because we're always going to have them on the back feet reacting to us Mm -hmm. and obviously that was personified in the august and september campaigns of 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 1944. he's literally moving past phase lines (laughs) so fast that 82nd 101st are planning jumps and then all of a sudden Patton captures you know the the drop zones
1: well in that way Is't that why two the uh, those two other airborne divisions never got jumps too I forget the division's names right now but uh, yeah the
2: 17th well it was yeah. the 17th airborne division they actually got jumped uh in operation varsity
1: oh, okay. uh, they were the guys yeah.
2: who crossed the Rhine uh, and then obviously 11th airborne out in the Pacific yep um but yeah so yeah 17th airborne did have a jump it okay. was but was it was under interestingly enough it was under they were part of Montgomery's command uh, for for the operation varsity. Okay. Uh, uh, operation in March of
1: forty-five. I was going to say, based off uh, Patton's Patton's um, insistence on the offense and and clearly understanding how to operate in this war of movement and operate uh, with timing at, at the fore of his mind. Do you think that that had anything to do with his uh, rise through the horse cavalry to the point where he became an armored officer? And if so, like did that did you see a similar thing with those horse cavalrymen and other armored units as they or other units as they moved up to the top and and higher rank and seniority and position?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think it's, I think he certainly had uh, a cavalry mindset in terms of how he viewed the cavalry going in, conducting raids getting behind and disrupting enemy lines of communication. He liked the Sherman because the Sherman was designed to operate very well on regular roads Mm -hmm. uh, and and not to damage roads. It had better tracks for roads. Obviously, it didn't have very good tracks for operating off-road, like the Panthers and and, and some of the German tanks. But that was a lot more, uh, you know, attuned to his vision of how he visualized tanks. He, you know, he certainly ascribed for better, for worse, you know, uh, to that idea of, I want to use my tanks as, you know, pursuit tanks to get into the enemy's rear, to go after his, you know, artillery and his supplies. He didn't necessarily view tanks as, is what we view tanks nowadays in the U.S. Army as, you know, our best tank killer is another tank. Right. Um, yeah. You know, that, so he kind of subscribed to the Leslie McNair philosophy of, you know, Tank destroyers and what have you. Yeah. Um, and he was reluctant to bring in the Pershings. Um, he felt like, hey, you know, what we have right here is doing the job. Prior to the Bulge, yes, there was the Battle of Aircourt and what have you, but for the most part, there weren't that many U.S. tank on German tank contacts in the in the European theater of operations in in forty four and forty five. So much so that. You know the German, the U.S. Army actually has a catalog and a vignette written for every time there was tank-on-tank combat uh, yeah. in Northwest Europe in 44 and 45. So it wasn't as as common as you know yeah, when you would like to believe. Yeah. And so you ask a lot of tankers, and they would be like, "Well, I, you know, I ended up using my 50 cal the most, yeah. or I had no problem using the the stubby 75." which obviously was great in a high explosive role taking out bunkers wasn't very good against you know yeah. german tanks who saw the majority of the tank on tank fighting especially when you had the normandy breakout that was the brits because they were dealing with most of the panzer divisions plus uh, the territory uh, in their sector up by khan and that area lend itself to more tank on tank warfare yeah. whereas we had the much more heavily bocaged mm-hmm. area and so, you just didn't see as much tank-on-tank warfare. Now, the Battle of Bulge changed all that. All of a sudden, you did see a lot of tank-on-tank warfare, and it, it was fine. It was basically that was kind of the final impetus to be like, "Hey, we got to bring, we got to bring the Persians in." But, uh, but yeah, Patton definitely was influenced by his time as a cavalry commander and how he viewed yeah. armor. Did that necessarily carry over? Uh, to other generals? It's a good question.
1: I think when you look at guys like Morris Rose and Ernie Harmon, and even uh, Terry Allen, you know, I think you see a very similar mindset at play.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news,
2: what was interesting about Alan, Allen was one of the first guys, to his credit, that thought about using infantry tactics yeah. uh, at night. Yep. Um, he had actually done it in the First World War, much to the you know criticism of his peers. And like, no one fights at night. It's hard to – and Alan, as we now know, it's like, mm-hmm. if I'm fighting at night, they can't see me. And if I'm trying to attack, I'm going to use the concealment of night to get close to the enemy trenches, which is exactly what he did. Mm -hmm. And he enjoyed a great deal of success. And he continued that, you know, he did that uh, in the lead up to, to El Guitar. He had the Rangers come in and get behind the Italians in a, in a, in a brilliant night attack. I I think he also, you're right. I think he had a, you know, he had some, you know, because of his time at Fort Bliss, Mm -hmm. he definitely had, you know, a cavalry mindset, but I also think he understood, you know, more so I think than other generals, you know, How to use infantry more effectively uh against things like machine guns and you know uh over-the-horizon artillery that obviously put him in good standing uh at the beginning of of the second world war. If you look at Rose, um I think you're right about you know Maurice Rose, especially when you look at, you know, how he's always trying to, you know, there's the so much so to his detriment, because that's, yeah, he, he, that's when he was getting out in front of his guys at Paderborn. <laughs> yeah, and it was shot and killed in a tragic accident. No, I think there's definitely something to be said for the impact of how we use cavalry. Interestingly, enough, I mean, that goes that goes back to like the 19th century. How the U.S. used cavalry was very different from our European counterparts. Uh, we had yep, we had absolutely. a very different. Concept of how cavalry was used in our European counterparts. We obviously had a much more yeah. standardized cavalry, where it was, just, it was all basically one type. And then the Europeans, mm-hmm. they have you know,
1: yeah,
2: there's like three types or whatever, dragoons, plus ceremony, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, carboniers. Yeah. yeah, that was that was a very foreign concept to the U.S. So,
1: yeah, the uh, I'm going to come back to that cavalry thing here in a moment, um, but. I just wanted to make a comment before I do um tie that into the my next question for you one of the I I like that you mentioned Patton and and Rhodes because in in uh Patton's book war as I knew it which we all know was actually put together by his wife (laughs) um he says that the surely the greatest study of war is the road network and I think that that line is an underappreciated You never see anybody quote that you see him quote all the other cool patent lines but that to me is like fundamental patent and i think that that's why you you saw patent operate as effectively as he did as he understood that the road network was really those are the arteries by which armies move through the body of conflict right and uh if you don't understand road networks um you're gonna be at a disadvantage so the question so i'm gonna i'm gonna call you out on one of your books okay the Battle of the Bulge book, I love it, but it's really about the 4th Armored Division, yeah. even though it says Patton yeah. on the cover. And P Wood or uh John Shirley Wood, for those who aren't familiar with his nickname P, and that was cuz he was a professor. Um but he was a very successful division commander, so so successful that they fired him. Nonetheless, he 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 uh he embodied many of the similar characteristics characteristics of Patton. no none, none just as uh just as, he had just as much bluster though and was just as difficult uh, for senior leaders to manage but he was an artillery officer which was an interesting thing and not a horse cavalryman so i just what did you find so unique and so interesting about fourth armored division that caused you to place them in such a prominent position in
2: your book full disclosure i didn't write the title of that book <laughs> and there is a misconception that authors uh omnipotent ability to write whatever title they want they we do have some yeah. we do have some feedback and we do have the ability to influence it um and yeah. I will say my very first book that I wrote with Don Sagan, no silent night they actually did like mm-hmm. the title that Don proposed which was no silent night so we ended up keeping it but uh, yeah. But for all the other nonfiction books, my editors basically gave me a drop down <laughs> menu and they were like, it could uh, okay. be this, it could be this, it could be this. And I remember.
1: So they didn't They didn't want a book called uh, John Shirley Wood, right. the Fourth Armored Division and the Battle so of the Bulge.
2: my original uh, uh, suggestion for a title on that book was actually going to be, it was just going to be Cobra King. And okay. they were like, well, what's Cobra King? and I'm, well, what was the tank that. Got to Bastone. It was like three of yeah. us. That, yeah, three of us um, that know what that means. <laughs> and they were like, no one knows that. And I was like, all right, well, true enough. Um, and then I was like, well, how about, you know, the fourth armor takes Bastone?" Because I really was writing yeah. it from the perspective of the fourth armored. I That was actually my initial
1: yeah.
2: goal. I had no intent yeah. to make this, this some kind of, you know, third army story. Yeah. I was like, Chronology, I'm just looking at fourth yeah. armor division. That's it. That's all I'm looking at.
1: Underappreciated division, no less, too. That's folks, folks have lost sight of how impactful 4th Armored Division was. And that's why I think this book is actually really, really good because it brings to light that and that, you know, like uh, Wood was gone by this point.
2: Well, and all of his commanders were still there. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Because they had all trained at uh, Fort Pine, which is, or Camp Pine, which is now Fort Drum. For yep. for like what three years before being deployed, and then they caught up with the uh, Third Army there as it got activated, yeah. and then you know they just yeah it's interesting because <laughs> yeah, Wood
2: didn't get along with God, what was it, it was the core commander, and I'm trying to remember who it was that he didn't get along with. That's got what got him fired. Yeah, I think it was Eddie? was it I think it was Manton Eddie. Yeah.
1: Let me look in your book real quick.
2: <laughs> no, I I like I said I was never intending to write a Third Army patent you know biography. That was never my intent. And the editor was like, here are your options. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, OK. Uh, and he's like, yeah. I put patent on a book. It's going to sell. And I'm like, well, I really can't argue with that. And it's funny because when I remember reading the views and it's in the reviews, we so are like, "Ah, it has nothing to do with patent. was like, you're actually right. It has nothing to do with yeah. patent, you know, but yeah. uh, did you like the book? Hey, if you like the book, great. Um, uh, that's right so and and for me it was a lot more about writing on the perspective of uh the you know the field grade and the company grade officers and obviously the junior uh enlisted who I was able to interview uh for the book because at the time there were still a lot of guys around I was able to interview a bunch of dudes um sadly I think all of them now have, have, have passed on um
1: yeah i'm sure yeah i think that that your your book does a really good job when you talk about the field grade level it does it's a fantastic i'm not a big fan of books that talk tactically um and and focus at tactical level um just because i think it it, it's uh, i don't know it's I enjoy the, the higher yeah. level um, discussion in terms of that. But I think that the, the dynamics that existed when you dig down into, you know, the 37th tank battalion and Creighton Abrams and how he commanded that battalion and not necessarily him, but how he, I thought that the way that he commanded the battalion in one spot, he talks about where he had assigned his S3. He put his S3 in charge of two companies and S2 his, his in charge of, two companies. And then those company commanders reported to each one of those two guys. And then those two guys reported to him. And it seemed like a very effective command system, especially the way that it was outlined in the book. And so I just, I, I thought that it was a really fascinating way of uh, of examining well, and, the 4th Army division. Well, Patton
2: said there was only one tanker that he knew that was better than he was. And he said it was Creighton Abrams. Creighton Abrams, if there was ever a guy who believed in the principles of mission command, creating abrams because you would tell his company commanders you basically give them a task and a purpose and that was it you know he'd be like you're going to yep. go to this town for this reason got it there was no 30 page op order it was just go to this town uh, yep. this is my commander's intent and um it was amazing uh because it worked and i think that's one of those kind of things where and Patton did this too, you know, there were generals that he absolutely implicitly trusted and he gave them a lot of leeway because he knew that they understood his vision, they understood his intent. And a lot of those commanders passed that on down um, to, you know, their subordinate commanders. And 4th Armored Division was, a you know, an excellent example of that. Uh, it is kind of funny because... Yeah, for sure. Abrams wasn't supposed to go through Asinwa. He had very strict orders uh and from the ccr commander and he's just like yeah whatever <laughs> yeah. and you know those kind of things where you know yeah. when you're great you can get away with a lot of things and you know he obviously he lifted the siege that's right and of course everyone's like but he really was not yep. following his orders <laughs> um, but yeah i think you know you look at his other you know the other corps commanders that he had um his other division commanders the other thing about patton was he had a really good staff by the time
1: that's what i was gonna prompt you on next i was gonna say that because he carried most of those guys forward with them after north africa right yeah and they went with them to sicily and then when they stood up third army he pulled them in and then put them down into command Yeah, Uh, Yeah. i think wasn't it
2: his is his his g2 oscar koch arguably was probably the best g2 in the army yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's telling everybody, hey, the Germans are about to do something in the Ardennes. He's telling them for like two weeks, and they're like, nah, man. Nah. If you want
2: to know something, he's actually like, there are all kinds of pictures of him uh, at Fort Huachuca. Yeah, he's oh, yeah, he's well, kind of like, well, be. Patton was great, but this is one of the reasons why Patton was great. And and I think there's some yeah. truth to that. And, and, and Patton, I think, also implicitly trusted his staff, and so he would basically give his staff, you know, mm-hmm command guidance and the staff would figure out what needs to happen um that wasn't always the case like in 43 you know but then again he was operating under a relatively new staff for uh you know for sicily and stuff like that but certainly by the time you know 44 and 45 you know his staff and the guys that they could do and the operation at which they could at the speed and the tempo which what they could operate because they they tended to move faster than the Germans, and and whether that's yep. you know staff work, mission command, but also just as you mentioned, uh, the utilization of U.S. Army logistics, which of course far exceeded anything the Germans had, and being able to leverage that really put them at a significant you know advantage.
1: Yeah, that's what I. Th- I think Patton's uh, – that's one of the things that I found when I was doing all this was uh, when I've done all the reading and, and research and writing that I've done because I've written clearly not two awesome books on Patton, but I've written some stuff about uh, Patton, but also just about like how to how to operate as a headquarters. And that was one of the big things that I had found when I dove into these books, but then also just a bigger study. There was a military review article that came out in like 91. It was something like Patton staffed the Battle of the Bulge. And it really did. It sold that point that you're making. It was that, you know, because there was so much continuity amongst the senior senior leaders on the staff and the key players on the staff that they were inside his mind and they could just do things in stride with him more or less so that you didn't have the normal, you know, the boss comes in and he sits down and everybody tells him what's going on. Then he like goes and ruminates and then comes back and gives guidance. It was very much... A, a very quick symbiotic relationship that existed. And I thought that that that's an underappreciated aspect of Patton when it comes to understanding how he fought and led was, you know, he, he, he did have a very good staff, yeah. but it's, he I used also the think, staff very well.
2: I think his bark was a lot worse than his bite.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, he was an actor and he would, he would say that, you know, it was, it was to get and, people yeah, to just, do what he you know, needed. Reading done. stuff
2: about his guys who were served on the Third Army staff, there wasn't that that kind of reaction that you normally get with what we today call toxic leadership. I I, I did not. Yeah. I didn't get that sense uh, from the from the Third Army guys. I did get that sense a little bit from the guys from First First Infantry Division back in '43. Uh, they probably would have easily easily labeled him uh, a toxic leader. Uh,
1: well, when he comes and urinates in Terry Allen's yeah. uh, you um, know, sleep but, hole. Uh,
2: <laughs> but yeah, I think um, it's funny because one of the things I I do a when I bring my students in, I basically do a tour at the MI Museum on the first day of class, and. I talk about when Patton did that 90 degree turn and they drove a hundred something miles and I'm like, I'm like, not to sell our own guys today. I'm like, I don't think we could pull that off today. You know, just get a a call and be like, Hey man, you're going to move a quarter of a million men.
1: <laughs> it's wild. I'm telling you, I've worked, I've worked on a joint staff, like an operational joint staff. And, uh, the idea of that, like I was in the J5 and, <laughs> you know, the idea of being able to do that, I think on right. paper, like doing the math and writing the orders, I think you could do that. But the physical turning of that army and ready, set, go, and it moving and not stopping and going right into the fight is just astounding.
2: Yeah. And 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 the thing is, is that it, is that it did. I mean, 4th Armored, you know, on December yeah. 22nd was crossing yeah. the line of departure. And, and it's something that non... Military people are just like, oh, yeah, you drove 100 miles. What's the big deal? And you're like, oh, moving a quarter of a million men out of, uh, you know, from where their normal operations area is to a whole new AM. Yeah, there's
1: not gas stations yeah. you just pull off at to refill. And yeah.
2: And it goes, but it's, it's not just patent. It's it was the whole e- oh, absolutely yeah it was the whole ETO U.S. Army in general
1: oh they realized the severity of the situation and they had to they had to enable Patton to do that term because he was at that point the only hope right
2: <laughs> well and it's also the only
1: immediate hope it
2: was also a misunderstanding by Hitler because Hitler thought he did some mirror imaging Hitler thought mm-hmm. that the allies were just like him that any major decision yeah. would require them to go back to Roosevelt We're back to Churchill. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't fathom that all they had to do was just go to Eisenhower and Eisenhower would be like, no, we're going to do this, this, and this, and that's it. And as a result, the Germans thought there was going to be a lot more command paralysis that didn't happen because they didn't understand, you know, how the U.S. chain of command worked. The fact that, you know, Roosevelt was like, well, Marshall, to a certain extent, was like, hey, Ike, that's your problem. Just tell us what you need. You'll figure it out. You know, there was no need to call back to Washington and be like, hey, what am I right. supposed to do now? Yeah. Uh, which is what German Army commanders were doing, you know, calling back to. Yeah, the entire time. Yeah, huh? Calling and back. D-Day wouldn't have happened as,
1: as successfully had that been the case.
2: And that was. Had that
1: not been the yeah, case. Yeah, and that then.
2: was something that Hitler did not understand. He didn't. And, it, and it, it, it ultimately, you know, bit them in the butt because our decision-making yep. process was a lot quicker than they had anticipated. Couple that with the fact that we also had the ability to move stuff very quickly. Now that they did know, they, they were very cognizant of our ability to yeah. move stuff, but it was the fact that they thought they could commit, that they could some kind of inflict some kind of command paralysis. And it, it just didn't happen. I mean, Eisenhower was making key decisions as early as the evening of December 16th when
1: yeah.
2: Hiller and the German high command were like oh they're not gonna know what's really going on until the 19th or the 20th uh, when in right. fact you know that was not the case and I think part of it had to do with their experiences in 1940 because that command paralysis did exist uh uh in the French command where you know, they're mm. calling back, you know, to the French headquarters. It, it was just a, you know, there was like a lag yeah. in decision-making. Um, that just did not exist with the United States in 44 and 45.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important thing too. Like <clears throat> understanding the differences in the players, right? And every player is going to play differently. And so you can't either mirror image yourself or mirror image that player on another player yeah. and expect uh, – that they're going to be doing the same thing. Uh, we're short on time here. So this has been a, a great conversation and I may hit you up and, <laughs> no try and continue this later. Cause this is a, uh, this stuff's right in my wheelhouse. I'm not a historian, but I pretend to be one when <laughs> I sit down with my books. Um, any other projects? I know you've written a bunch of other stuff, but any other projects or anything that you'd like to mention before we break here?
2: Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm f- finishing as, I don't know, like my last book was actually a fiction book and i've kind of swerved over into fiction and so my next book hopefully will be coming out by the summer it's going to be titled eagle and the bear and it's a contemporary world war three scenario a la i like to call it like tom clancy meets you know leo tolstoy red storm rising meets war and peace bottom line is NATO gets involved uh, kinetically in the war in Ukraine. The uh, the end result of it is uh, NATO ends up invading Russia. You know, very similar to Iraq in two thousand and three. Yeah. I know some people are gonna be like, well, "What about the nukes?" And Don't worry, I have a stuff that talks about the nukes and how the nukes are are dealt with. So that's uh, that's my next project, and hopefully, it'll be out by you know sometime early summer
1: with that leo thank you very much for your time it's been a pleasure and and thank you for coming on the podcast yep. thank you this has been revolution of military affairs i'm your host amos fox thank you for listening today if you would do me a favor please like and share the podcast and also if you have any feedback or any comments or questions feel free to shoot me an email i'm always happy to get back to you